Welcome to the Industry Insights by SAP podcast series. I'm delighted to host this podcast and share key trends and innovations for each of the 25 industries we serve. At SAP, we like to say that we speak the language of our customers, and this language is industry. We've been supporting all industries for more than 50 years now, and it's exciting to launch this podcast and discuss with industry experts the business value that they get from our solutions. My name is Tom Raftery with SAP, and with me on the show today, I have my special guest, Gavin. Gavin, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, thanks, uh, Tom. My name is Gavin Starks, and I'm the founder of Icebreaker One. Uh, I've got a background in data spanning uh, too many decades now, uh, including co-chairing the development of the Open Banking Standard, setting up uh, the Open Data Institute a decade ago, and then prior to that, setting up a venture-backed company called Amy, uh, which was aggregating all of the carbon footprinting information on Earth. All of the carbon footprint information on Earth. It sounds like a small little backroom project while you were... Yeah. <laughs> I like small projects. I think, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, I, I studied astrophysics uh, at uni and um, worked at Jodrell uh, Bank Radio Telescope mapping out sections of the universe. So I, I don't like small projects. <laughs> Earth is very small when you're mapping out the entire universe. It did seem like a smaller subset, so it's very, very achievable. Uh, and it feels like we're doing that now. I think, you know, the amount of Earth observation data now, we're scanning the whole Earth, I think, three meter resolution on a daily basis mm. now, multispectral. So um, that changes everything. <laughs> so tell me about Icebreaker 1. Yeah. So actually, be before ice- that, you said yeah. the open banking standard. What, what, what's that? Yeah. So Open Banking Standard was uh, an initiative uh, led in the UK by Treasury uh, initially. And uh, what we did there was brought together all of the high street banks, uh, a bunch of startups and SMEs and, and government regulators and so on, and created a, a standard for data interoperability that is now regulated. So it's mandatory across the, the sector. Um, and the the... When we talk about interoperability, it's just—it's not just technology interoperability, as, and there are standards for APIs and data and so on. There's also legal interoperability, uh, liability, uh, modes of redress, dispute resolution, consent management, and what it enables is this really pretty seamless uh, ability to share your uh, bank data, so things like bank statements, with third parties. So if you want to integrate your uh, bank statements with um, your accountancy firm, it's a few clicks. Uh, if you want to pay your uh, tax earlier this year, to great delight in, in using the government website without any <laughs> copy and paste. It was three clicks and I paid my tax. Uh, wow. So it's really about removing friction from the system. So the the, the reason it's a, a standard really is, is, is easy to say be interoperable, but being interoperable in the same way across an entire market that is, is cohesion. So it's the mixture of cohesion and interoperability and then having it regulated so everybody has to do it um, isn't something I thought we'd see in my lifetime, to be honest, but we managed to pull it off. And it's now in dozens of countries. Kudos, kudos. And how did it move from being in the UK to being in dozens of markets? Sure. So um, we started off with a very uh, UK remit there um, and what we did at the point of publishing, uh, what we were doing 
is mandated that everything that that initiative did would be openly licensed. So all the documentation and the documents were all Creative Commons licensed and all the code was MIT licensed. So it enabled other people to copy it directly. And so we had calls very quickly from other countries saying, oh, can we do that too? Uh, how do we do that? At uh, which point I'd say, well, just go to the website and copy it. New Zealand was the first out the bat, uh, out the gate there and got to market within a couple of years uh, with most of the market on board uh, as an industry-led initiative. And then other countries like Canada, right the way through to um, Hong Kong, Singapore, et cetera, have all been exploring the same architecture of how do you really create this um, interoperability at scale across sectors. Uh, and that's very much led me to the, the, the thinking uh, behind Icebreaker One, which I set up a, um, a couple of years after the, the open banking mm -hmm. uh, work, uh, was having done this in the middle of the financial sector, which again, the fact that the, the banks did it first is, is a bit bewildering. Uh, <laughs> but based on that, we said, well, could we do this for other sectors? Uh, and could we um, enable large-scale data interoperability, not just of open data, but of the commercial data, the sensitive stuff that people don't want to share? Can we crack this web of data piece? Uh, we've got all the technology. That's It's not a technology problem. It's a cultural problem, a legal problem, a governance challenge, and so on. Uh, and so we had this blueprint from open banking that we thought, well, maybe we could apply this across other areas. And, and so... I set up Icebreaker uh, as a as a nonprofit to take these ideas forward into energy, water, transports, uh, the built world, and agriculture, which are all the areas most linked to net zero. Right. So, just before jumping into that, where does the name come from? Uh, a few different points. One, uh, one of my uh, friends described me as a bit of an icebreaker. Personally, <laughs> um, I also live on one. Uh, so I'm sitting on a an icebreaker just next to the uh, next to Tower Bridge uh, right now, and we added the one uh, partly because my my son's very into Thunderbirds, so <laughs> it felt felt like we should really uh, have a double barreled name. So icebreaker one it was. Nice, 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 nice. So tell me a bit more about icebreaker one. I mean, we we have it at a very broad level right now. Let's let's get down a little more into it. How will this help with this is the Climate 21 podcast, and we, we want to talk about climate emission reduction stories and strategies. So mm -hmm. bring the two together for me. Sure. So the, the, there's this uh, sort of coming of age of IoT and sensors where everything is getting censored. So we've got this huge tsunami of data coming towards us, mixed, as I mentioned, with the Earth observation data. So today's the simplest it's going to be. So it's only going to get more <laughs> complex uh, right. from this point onwards. Uh, and then... Really, everybody's saying, well, we, we need to invest trillions. And we, we heard it uh, COP, you know, $130 trillion worth of global assets now have to be aligned with the Paris Agreement. That's 40% that's global assets. Mm. So the financial community now needs access to information that they might not have had before. Um, otherwise, we're going to make decisions that lead us in the direction of net zero, but don't necessarily hit net zero. Um, and it's really quite important that we hit net zero here. <laughs> uh, so... To get the data flow there, now whether that data flow is the carbon intensity of a, a kilowatt hour uh, across a, a system at a particular uh, period, um, or whether it's the scope three emissions from part of someone's supply chain, the investment community really need access to that information. But so do the engineers. 
you know, if we're, we, we need to both direct uh, the finance to net zero solutions and prove it, we need to demonstrate uh, net zero. And we need to give the engineers the uh, opportunity and, and capability to vastly improve our efficiency. You know, we've got to hit um, 50%. We've got to have our carbon emissions in the next eight years. Mm. Okay, yeah. so uh, we need to double our renewable energy production and we need to have our energy consumption and or double our energy efficiency, maybe a better way of putting it. So suddenly you've got everybody saying, oh, we need all the data for X, Y, or Z. And I spent a couple of years talking to hundreds of people with, and the conclusion from whether it's a hedge fund or whether it's an insurance company or whether it's an engineering firm or whoever it was, like, we just need all the data. <laughs> okay, well, and the natural response from countries or big organizations or multinationals to that question is, well, let's build a big data portal and put all the data in one place. And obviously that doesn't work. Uh, why don't why doesn't that work? Just, I mean, I, I, I have a good idea myself, but just for people yeah. who are listening. Sure. Uh, well, uh, partly cultural uh, companies, we've all been programmed not to share. Mm-hmm. And I, I spent four years at the, at the ODI uh, with organizations saying, you know, we'd love it if everybody else is open as long as we don't have to be. Um, <laughs> Uh, and there's plenty of initiatives that I've tried, and and there's um, you know there are some cases where it's worked, but I think there's a, a, a step before that that we need to work out. It's not to say that we don't need to put certain categories of data together for particular times, types of analytics, but starting off by just saying let's just put all the data in one place um, it, it isn't a good strategy. It's not a good strategic approach. It's it's you know we build a big data lake and then start mining it. Well. <laughs> What's the use case before we get into that? So the blueprint here that we've got from open banking is leave the data where it is. And then when it's needed, provide consent within a tightly controlled process so that your risks and controls are managed so that you can say, yes, you can have access to that for that purpose. Now that when you're looking at, say, national energy data, it's, it, there, there's national national security interest in there. There's commercial mm. interest in there. There's IP in there. So people are not naturally inclined to just say, well, we'll just take all our data and put it in some, even if it's a data trust or, or some kind of centralized you know, national supercompute facility. It's heavy lifting to get people to get you the data. And it's, it's because it's also at that point, it becomes a distinct project rather than business as usual. So we're trying to move the dial here from a, a centralized approach to a decentralized approach is over with energy There's over 8,000 companies in the energy sector in the UK going to each one of them saying, Oh, could you put your data over here? Doesn't scale. <laughs> um, we've got this wonderful thing called the web, uh, which is the most successful data architecture in history. Mm-hmm. I've heard and of it. It scaled pretty well. You know, uh, we went from zero to a billion websites in not very uh, long, but we didn't in the process of that, really take the the rest of the system along with us, which is why we're now trying to retrofit things like GDPR and trying to kind of close various stable doors after the the horse is now turned into a unicorn somewhere else. <laughs> uh, and um, the so the process here that we take with Icebreaker One is to say, how can we bring together the legal components, the business units, the um, regulators and so on and say if we construct this in a way that's very repeatable we can connect people rather than collecting all the data 
Uh, and so the approach we're taking is how can we get all of the organizations in a particular sector, as we did with banking, to agree that that's a really good way of doing something? And then just say, rubber stamp that, here is how we're going to share smart meter data from wind turbines uh, across the whole network. Here are the terms and conditions, here's where it's free, here's where you have to pay, here's the control points, so not everybody is allowed access only certain people in the market are allowed access to certain levels of granularity of data. So we're doing the really heavy lifting work here now, starting with the use cases, setting up advisory groups, getting industry uh, and government around the table to say which things are really material here. And as we start to unpack them, it'll be repeatable for the whole market. Um, so Open Energy is a program now that's, that's been running for um, just over a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was part of a national competition, which we uh, won uh, to develop open energy as an equivalent to open banking for the energy sector. Uh, and it's, you know, it's all a heavy lifting, you might imagine it. I, I can't even begin to imagine. I mean, just trying to get all those stakeholders to agree. And, and it's, my, my, he- my head is exploding just thinking of the concept <laughs> right now. Well, it's, it's a classic thing, you know, there's a, the infamous XKCD card saying, you know, you've got 12 standards, you want to make another one that unites them all, suddenly you have 13 standards. So that's what we're not doing. Uh, so what we, we, what we are doing, and this is where the, the government's involvement and regulatory involvement is really key in getting people around the table, is we can say, well, look, what's best practice right now? What have you got? What's working? Okay, that's, that's version one. Right, from a from a technical standards point of view, you know, okay. you've got a metadata standard, you've got an API standard. Okay, great. No, it's not perfect, but let's all agree that it's the one that we're just going to run with and iterate. Let's then wrap around the really tough bits around consent management and liability transfer and data rights and who can do what with which bit of information. Those are the they, those are typically the blockers to data flow. Uh, you know, once we've agreed that the data can flow, it's, you know, it's not hard to set up an API these days, yeah. although a lot of people seem to th- still think it is, but you know, you can just take your, uh, you know, if it's relatively uh, infrequently changing data, then it's really not hard to share it. It gets different, you know, when, when you get down into sort of uh, per second or per, even per 30 minutes, it has different challenges. But I think the question comes back to what's the use case? So we tend to talk about, rather than, rather than talking about real-time data, we talk about relevant time data. What's decision-relevant uh, yeah. data? Uh, and then as we layer this together with um, uh, other information, just looking at the, the scope of what is energy data, that includes the weather, yeah. because the cables melt. Um, <laughs> so suddenly you're into this very diverse distributed decentralized network of information that people need access to. Uh, and so the more we can improve that access and reduce the friction of that access from a bilateral contract that might take three to six months to something that is three clicks and takes six seconds, uh, it means that we're going to enable whoever is in the, that ecosystem, whether it's the engineers or the finance folks or people building analytical tools or developing AI Let's give them access faster so that they can work out how to make us twice as efficient and have twice the amount of um, renewables, get that to market, get twice the amount of funding moving. Mm, Nice, nice. And there's 
to, to my, you know, naive mind, there is a, a nice match between the financial and banking data and the energy data, because as you alluded to, the GFAN's uh, proposal that came out of COP26 in Glasgow and the 130 trillion, it without the right energy information, it could be very easy to direct some of that 130 the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So will the two systems talk to each other? It's a very good question. So th- this is, again, where you've got lots of different people doing different things, as we always do. And it's one of the reasons why building lots of centralized points isn't the first step, mm. uh, because then you have to work out to connect them all. And so we're saying, well, if we can work out what the wiring should look like, then it becomes easier to build different silos for different types of purposes. So what we're trying to do here is, is unlock a web of what we call a web of net zero data. And that connects financial information, engineering information, and environmental data to help inform net zero decisions. It's really early days at this stage because we're, we're trying to do that sort of breakthrough of building out particular use cases. But I think there's an exponential change element of this. And, and you know, mapping this back into the, the challenge that we have at hand, we need exponential change around net zero if we're going to have any hope yeah. of getting to a 50% reduction by 2030. And so we need to radically increase the ability for us to share actionable information and decision uh, relevant information. The financial community can then use that to hold people to account in their investment thesis. So when people are creating, whether it's a procurement or an investment or a, a sovereign um, wealth fund, you know, how are they going to mandate the delivery of net zero? Because it's, it's not good enough just to say, you've got to invest in low carbon. Mm. Well, that doesn't that doesn't give me confidence uh, that we're going to hit the target, uh, and so there there needs to be a way of us very acutely measuring the impact here, and all of these things will ultimately flow into uh, the the equivalent of credit scoring for organisations. There's already been capital flight away from things that are going to be stranded assets, but but where does it fly to? Well, it flies to the places where there's the most demonstrable action to net zero. Microsoft saw that with their own announcements uh, about retroactively um, becoming carbon neutral. Now, that's the beginning. You know, so when we were here and looking at you know, how do we de-risk the investment profile for a low carbon technology, there's two elements to that. One is we have to increase the risk of the fossil fuel and demonstrate what that looks like. Mm-hmm. So actually you drive uh, the behavior to treat assets as stranded assets faster, but then we end end up in the in the just transition conversation of saying, well, you can't just switch off the coal-fired power plants tomorrow because you'll switch off the hospitals. So how do we de-risk the investment then in the replacements and get them to market faster? Because every every single year we accelerate change, we create an exponential change downstream. So We'd love to see the information flows there about the um, demonstrable net zero at the design stage, the construction stage, the operational stage, and the decommissioning stage of infrastructure projects so that that information can flow to the people who need it. And the people who need it are predominantly the financial community who need to make investment decisions. 
the engineers who need to know what works and the policymakers who need to help unblock things that are in the way and and amplify things that will accelerate that change. So um, you know, one of the, the groups that we are uh, part of is called the Climate Financial Risk Forum. Uh, and that's run uh, through the Financial Conduct Authority, the Bank of England and the Pensions Regulator in the UK. And around the table there, you've got um, Legal and General, Aviva, BlackRock and so on. Uh, the <clears throat> question we are bringing to the fore there is, what's the information flow that you need to make your investments material and demonstrate that you're going to deliver the low carbon future that we need. You know, joining these systems up is again, hard work, <laughs> but it requires this sort of multi uh, dimensional approach of bringing together government and industry uh, and bringing together sectors so that they can maximize the, the trillions that are going to flow in this direction. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the policymakers part of it because mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's obviously crucial uh, and possibly underappreciated. One of the issues that I am seeing at the moment is that there's a huge focus on hydrogen. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you start to look at the numbers around hydrogen, for many of the use cases being put forward, it makes no sense. I mean, hydrogen is today. Uh, made 98% of the hydrogen today globally is made by steam fracturing uh, methane, making it a de facto fossil fuel. Uh, To produce a kilo of hydrogen at the moment uh, causes the production of between 10 and 12 kilos of CO2. If it's made in kind of a European grid, if it's made in China, it causes between 18 and 20 kilos CO2 per kilo of hydrogen. And then there's the whole efficiency problem. Now, for some use cases, I can see a potential for hydrogen, but for others, it's mm-hmm. an appalling idea that will make us far worse than we are right now. Transportation is an obvious one there. So the getting that kind of information, for example, to policymakers who are being inundated by lobbyists for fossil fuel industry who are saying hydrogen will save the world is obviously hugely important. Absolutely. And so access to trusted information, that Mm. word trust comes right to the fore there. And that's something we've heard from hundreds of organizations, I think, over over the uh, last few years is, yes, we're getting the information, but, you know, where is it coming from? Is it credible? How do we maintain data quality? There's lots of, you know, actually business as usual challenges in the mix here. Even if you take the net zero agenda out of the equation, how are we going to make sure we've got better data to make decisions uh, as businesses? Uh, and um, I think there, the, there's a, some really interesting trends. So this idea of um, mapping out the data value chain is something that we're taking into uh, organizations now, and, and they're really struggling. It's, not, it's a different way of thinking. Because mm. typically you'll, you'll say, well, how do, we, how do we get our own house in order? Um, and then what, what do we need from other people and we're going to ask them for it and so on. So when you're taking more of a, a use case led approach and you say, well, who's in the data value chain here? And that includes the customer chain as well as the supply chain, as well as across your own organization. The architectural approach to that needs to be web. It needs to be web-based, but then you immediately hit these blockers of, well, who's, uh, whose liability is that? You know, <laughs> Where's the dispute resolution process? Uh, who's going to take the lead and working out these really difficult inter-organizational um, relationships? 
But again, we have a blueprint for this that is uh, functional, right? It can reduce the friction. Um, and I think uh, to, to your example there, that evidence, you know, from let, let's say somebody out there has created some hydrogen process that is, you know, uh, radically less than uh, the, the existing mechanism. Well, let's get that to market as quickly as possible. Let's get as many eyes on that uh, as we can. But there's a, there's another component to this, which you know we've all been learning the hard way through our social media. Mm-hmm. Of even if you're not on Facebook and you're not being tracked and you've switched everything off, you're, you're being tracked because the people you know are being tracked, and then you can your profile can be um, discerned from that. Now that's already happening in the commercial sector, and is only going to increase more. So this idea of where is the data flowing about our organizations, who's responsible, who's accountable, and so on. The questions around that are going to get tougher. As I said, you know, today's the simplest it's going to be. The natural um, corporate antibodies that kick in is like, well, we should close everything down. And unfortunately, closing everything down is the opposite of what we need to do right <laughs> now uh, in order to, you know, stay in business, you know, businesses, you know, if you look at the richest companies on earth right now, they've made their money by connecting. Yeah. Um, and through those connections, their, their data increases in value, the more it's connected uh, rather than just having it all. Uh, so it's quite a, it's quite a seismic change at one, one level for people working uh, particularly in, in large corporates where you're trying to navigate a data strategy for the future is how do we connect, not collect without letting or feeling that we're letting a whole bunch of value leave the door, but actually there's going to be more coming in than going out. Okay. And again, you're working within the UK uh, on this open energy, will this be similar to the open banking? Will it be copy and pasted throughout the the rest of the world? Hopefully, uh, well, I'd certainly encourage that. Um, I think the we've got a, a couple of early signals of that. Uh, we've had a very great relationship with New Zealand since we started the open banking piece and helped them uh, there. Uh, we're in conversation already about potentially taking the open energy piece over uh, and running some pilots uh, in New Zealand uh, with local partners. You know, our, our own approach is federated and decentralized. You know, um, There's another initiative called uh, Mission Innovation, uh, and that's uh, part of the uh, multinational efforts for a green-powered future. The secretariat of that includes uh, China, the Ministry of Science and Technology, Italy, uh, Ministry of Ecological Transition, and the UK, uh, is the uh, business and energy and industrial strategy uh, department. So Icebreaker One's part of the secretariat of that now, and we're taking open energy into that framework. The UK, uh, fortunately, has the lead uh, role as uh, on, on uh, data and interoperability. So we've just taken all of the work from open energy and copied and pasted it in there. Nice. Um, and, and, you know, we're hoping to work, start working on demonstrator, international demonstrators, because this could help not just domestically, but also with cross-border data flows. Exactly. Um, so there's, there's some good platforms there for us to take things forward. Okay. And were you at COP26? Was that of any use to you? Yeah. So it was, we had a very intense uh, COP26. Uh, um, we were presenting, I think, every day for about six days uh, on different fora. 
Mission Innovation launched their first uh, roadmaps, a 10-year mission uh, to uh, create a green-powered future uh, with the open energy kind of model uh, embedded in it. Uh, we also had, I think, a few good signals coming out from industry. So my, my takeaways at a political level, while we didn't achieve what everybody wanted to achieve, we did actually achieve a lot. It won't get us to 1.5 in mm. time at a political level. The industry, I suppose the signals I was getting from industry, I'm more confident about than at any other point I've been. Good. Uh, so I think there's a lot of noise still, huge amounts of greenwash, huge amounts of noise mm. uh, and statements. And in the heart of it, uh, at the heart of that, though, there is signal. And I think that signal has some exponential qualities to it. So the key thing we have to do really is start finding what can grow exponentially and just amplify that and give it as much oxygen as possible. Uh, and certainly data came up in hundreds of conversations that I had over the, over the period. Um, so we've got a, a lot of work to do. So I, I think the, you know, the good news is that I don't think it's as bad as some of the more extreme on the kind of activist side might be projecting. We definitely need to be worried. You know, I'm an astrophysicist, <laughs> climate change. I've spent the last 15 years working on climate change for this reason. Uh, but the, the levers of change have to be this combination of government and policy, large companies and the investment community driving that change. Um, the, the action for consumers and for citizens is to ask your pension provider, your bank, your insurance company, what is their net zero strategy? That's point one. Point two, how are they going to prove it? Mm. That's the question I love. And the third one, how is your chief exec's remuneration tied to delivering that target? Because those are the those are the levers of change. We got a hundred thousand people calling up their pension providers. They'll get they'll get paid attention to. It's interesting. So so. It's interesting. Just on this podcast alone, in the last couple of months, the number of people who have brought up that exact point. Hmm. Contact your pension provider and your bank, your insurance company, and ask them to justify or ask them to show that they're doing this that's it show me the plan and show me how you're going to prove it i think it's the the second one is super important in the mix there and the third one's just an, a good provocation <laughs> and i mean again i know the answer but maybe people listening don't why pension plan, plans in particular so one of the things when i was setting up icebreaker is like well where's what organizational structures need to think about the long term like legally, because mm. because most businesses you're you're tied to quarterly return cycle uh, with the market. You're legally required to maximize value to your shareholders on a very short time frame. So it doesn't drive the right kind of behaviors. I thought, well, I'm I'm not going to try and change the entire capitalist framework in the next ten years because it will take longer. I thought you I thought you like big projects. I like big projects, <laughs> but you've got to you've got to also have a dose of realism somewhere in the mix. Um, and I think there are structural changes that will happen in amongst this, but you've got to demonstrate the value along the way. So when we were looking at, you know, who cares, who has to care about the long term, there were two groups that surfaced, insurance companies and pension funds. They're, they're the ones who have to think on a 25-year on a horizon. Actually, not much longer than that. 
Right. But it, climate is now very much within that horizon. And um, the, the mechanism here, again, we have to understand the governance processes surrounding the financial institutions with which we entrust our money. The pension funds are required by law to maximize the returns for their uh, pension, uh, for, for the funds themselves, yep. for the end stakeholders, which is you and me. Um, so when they look historically at what is the lowest risk to get a return, the data exists for obviously for the fossil fuel industry for decades. It doesn't exist for as long for renewables. Yeah. So we need to change the way the risk modeling is done, which is where you come back to the insurance companies who are, are fantastic at risk modeling. But then you know they don't have all the data. They're creating new models. And one of the the, program, the first program we ran uh, was working with Aon, uh, with British Insurance, Lloyd's, uh, Willis Towers, Watson, Arup, um, to to work out what's a climate ready financial product. What does that even mean? <laughs> um, and you know it's super interesting because you know you've got. Uh, the domain experts in, in these different organizations have real specialism in the different areas, but really joining it up into more systems thinking is really hard work and it isn't necessarily happening uh, at the degree you might imagine it is. Um, so a lot of our work has been trying to bring together these multi-stakeholder groups to say, you know, we had Cambridge University in the mix there, the Cambridge Zero program. Um so it brings the climate science right to the table. So actually, it's that's not how that works. <laughs> so you've got that model over there. No, that's, that's not a thing. So bashing heads together, it's it's a continuous process, but we, we've got to get on and make things yeah. and, and stop writing and not write reports about what should be done. <laughs> we've got to go out and test this stuff now. Fantastic. Gavin, we're coming towards the end of the podcast now. Is there any question I have not asked that you wish I had or... Any topic we've not touched on that you think it's important for people to be aware of? I think that it's really about the call to action here. I think that there's two calls to action. One is on a personal level is do call up your pension provider and, and your insurer and your bank and say, show me your plans and tell me how you're going to prove it. I think we need to all take that into our workplace as well and say, that what are we doing? What, what change can we affect here? How can we de-risk our internal politics here. And the more people who are saying, no, we'll support this, the more likely it is that you'll get the buy-in. One of the journeys that I've been on many times now is you go in at the, the, the bottom of an organization and everybody's totally passionate about doing something, but it's always somebody else's problem up the chain to make a decision. Yeah. And so you go up the chain right the way to the board and the board says, well, you yeah, know, but we need the shareholders to approve it. And then the shareholder, you got shareholders of the pension funds. The pension funds. Well, we need to de-risk this. We need the support from uh, the pension holders, which takes you right the way back <laughs> to the start. So everybody in the system wants to create change. You know, there's always notable exceptions, but mm. they're actually in the minority. Um, so there's a collective action problem where we we've systemically disable ourselves from taking action. So it needs everybody to take the question into the meeting. How are we going to make this net zero? Fantastic. Great. Gavin, that's been awesome. Thanks a million. If people want to know more about yourself or about Icebreaker One or Open Financial or Energy or any of the things we talked about today, where would you have me direct them? 
shoot just icebreaker1.org and my email is just gavin at icebreaker1.org just get in touch fantastic fantastic gavin that's been brilliant thanks a million for coming on the podcast today thanks very much thank you for listening to the industry insights by sap podcast if you want to explore our industry portfolio to find the solutions you need to run your business better faster and simpler please visit us at sap.com industries